Jason for jumping in here this morning and leading us. Uh, it's good to see everybody. We have been in a series looking at the life of the great man of God, the Apostle Peter. Started back in June, and we come to a close today. Um, we did some looking through the Gospels, and then we saw Peter as he factored into the book of Acts. And then we jumped to the two letters that Peter writes, 1 Peter and then 2 Peter, just a couple, a handful of weeks ago. And so we closed that out here today. A um, couple of quick announcements that I wanted to add to that list. One is the Young at Heart are having a luncheon um, in December, and the date for that is back in the lobby. And there's a sign-up sheet back there as well. Miss Mary Francis would love it if you would sign up uh, this week, maybe next weekend, uh, at least by next weekend, so that way she can have a head count for the number of folks and the catering. Um, and then also just a reminder about the hayride coming up in a couple of weeks. Um, it is I mean, it's crazy to think that Christmas is here, but it is here. And so I'm excited uh, to be able to celebrate the Christmas season here on Sunday mornings. I've got a lot of great Christmas music coming your way starting next Sunday. Hope you and your family will um, continue to be a part of that. Um, our text for today comes from 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 20 through 21. I'm going to ask if you would to stand to your feet for the reading of God's word. 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 20 and 21. This is Peter talking about what the Bible is. All right, here we go. Verse 20. Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. You may be seated. Um, these are consequential verses. Consequential in the sense that um, it, it defines, these verses help define or refine our understanding of what the scriptures represent, what this book represents to us. So let's kind of dig into this. He says in verse 20, he says, knowing this first of all, that no prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. Now, if I'm a Jewish person living back in the first century and even beyond, when they think of prophecy, they think of the totality of scripture. Um, they didn't see Scripture as something that was produced by the will of man or by the thoughts of men or by the wisdom of men, but rather that it was produced by God. And that's what prophecy is. It's more than just being able to predict the future. But these are words that God gave. And so that's the way they see this. So he says that knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture, talking about the Bible, comes from someone's own interpretation. Again, with this statement, Peter's pointing to the divine origin of the Holy Scriptures. And he says in verse 21, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. Now, this is very forceful language here. Over in the NIV, it actually used the word that it was never produced uh, by the will of man. Peter is saying that the prophecies of Scripture or the prophets who wrote the Scriptures were absolutely, unequivocally, never in any way, shape, or form the result of the will of man. Rather, he says that the way the Bible came about was that the authors of the Bible spoke from God as they were carried along by the Spirit. Now that statement there, being carried along by the Spirit, is a unique statement, and so we want to kind of stop for here for a few moments and just ask, well, what does he mean by carried along by the Spirit? So a couple of questions here that maybe already popped into your mind, and so we'll see if we can tackle some of these. Question number one is, when we think about the Bible as being, or the biblical writers as being carried along by the Spirit, do we mean, first of all, that uh, Peter is saying that they were in some sort of trance-like state. Is that what Peter's indicating here when he says they were carried along by the Spirit? That they were uh, not even cognizant, not even uh, you know, mentally present. They were just, you know, Jeremiah was holding the pen, 
and God was causing the pen to move on, on papyrus, and that that's how the Bible came about. Is that what Peter means? Well, the answer is no, that's not what Peter means when he says that they were carried along by the Spirit. He's not suggesting that the biblical writers were unaware or unalert at the time that they recorded the words of Scripture. Instead, they had their full faculties about them. You say, well, then, if they had their full faculties about them, then is Peter saying, question number two, that the biblical authors were just taking down dictation, that God told Paul what to write, that he told Jeremiah what to write, that he told Moses, you write exactly this, and that they were just sort of secretaries who were just uh, writing down or dict- the dictation that God Almighty was giving them. Is that what Peter means? Again, again, the answer is no. That's not what Peter means. The biblical writers at the time that they wrote the scriptures, did not serve as secretaries receiving dictation from the Almighty. And we know this is not the case because there's evidence in every single letter in the New Testament and in every single letter or book of the Bible in the Old Testament of the author's unique writing style. Now, if those authors um, were just being given dictation, Moses, Jeremiah, Paul, all the way through Old Testament through the New Testament, then we would expect there'd only be one writing style, right? God's writing style. Uh, But instead, the Bible reflects the the unique writing style of each of the biblical contributors. In addition to their unique writing styles, each author appears to have a unique knowledge of the local setting. They greet individuals who are on the receiving end of these letters. If they were in some trance-like state or taking down dictation, why would they be doing that? If God was telling them, hey, you write this, and then all of a sudden in their letter they're saying, hey, tell Epaphras hello from me, uh, why, would God, why would God, through Paul, be causing Paul to say that? Uh, friends, the Bible is not the product, or it's not produced by dictation, and it is not what Peter, and that's not what Peter means when he says that the biblical writers were carried along in the Spirit. So what does Peter mean when he says that the Bible is the product of somebody being carried along in the Spirit? Here's what Peter means. It means that the presence of the Holy Spirit was with each biblical writer, as they were writing, and that the presence of the Holy Spirit preserved each biblical writer from teaching error. So we can have confidence, cover to cover, in every word from this book, knowing that it is the truth that God wanted to be recorded. Paul says it this way, 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 16, all scripture, notice the word all. He doesn't say the stuff that you know, that we feel good about, the stuff that gives us warm and fuzzies. But he says all Scripture, all of it is breathed out by God. As that is the Holy Spirit was right there in the process of this writing of the Holy Scriptures. Think of this, uh, th- I think of the biblical writers like a sailing vessel. Perhaps the sailboat is out on the water and there's not a stitch of breeze blowing anywhere. Uh, the boat's basically stranded, sitting in the middle of the bay or whatever, wherever it happens to be, because there's no wind blowing. The sails are up, but they're just flat. All of a sudden, a little ripple comes across the water, the sails begin to fill, and then the boat is off. And it's the same kind of concept with the biblical writers. God does not uh, remove the sailboat. I mean, the biblical writers of the sailboat, God then with his Holy Spirit comes in as those sails are set up and begins to fill those sails, and then the biblical writer is off and writing with the Holy Spirit giving them and guiding them in what it is they are to write. R.C. Sproul puts it this way, and I quote, he writes, in the mystery of inspiration, the Holy Spirit so protected the text that he used the very vocabulary and style, the very humanity that each author brought to the text 
but he preserved each author from teaching error, end of quote. All right, let me summarize all this. With these two verses, Peter presents a high view of Scripture, a high view of Scripture. He's basically saying that, hey, look, this is the product of what God wanted those people to write, not of their wisdom, man's wisdom, or man's uh, thinking. Uh, he presents a high view of Scripture, one that attributes the origins of Scripture to God himself. God does not eliminate the biblical author and his personality from the writing process, but with the presence of the Holy Spirit, God protects and preserves what is produced. In this way, listen now, the Bible is, that's what this is, this is God's truth in written form. This is God's truth in written form. That's what 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 20 and 21 is trying to convey. Will you all say that with me? The Bible is God's truth in written form. That's what we have here. All right, well, that's uh, our treatment of this text for today. And so that means it's time for us, to, maybe a little early on, to ask our most important question, what difference does all this make to my life? That's a great question. Let me see if we can answer that. In saying that the biblical writers were carried along by the Spirit as they wrote or as they prophesied, Peter is making a case for the authority of Scripture. The authority of Scripture. I've got a slide for you here, and this shows, this may be familiar to some of you, um, this is John Wesley's four sources of truth. So he identifies four different ways that we can come to know what truth is. Uh, one of those is Scripture. We've already talked about that. Another is reason. Uh, this would be philosophy. This would be the ologies of, of the academic pursuits, biology, psychology, sociology, all those ologies, the theology, right? All the academic pursuits. Um, also, he mentions tradition. Tradition would be what your grandmother and your grandmother grew up telling you and what your church family, perhaps, that you were raised in taught. And, and that all those things are tradition. And from that tradition, we're able to learn what truth is. And then there's experience. Experience can be a great teacher, of what truth is. I mean, you touch a stove that's hot, you learn, <laughs> don't do that again. Uh, you dissipate your parents or you're ugly towards your mom and dad, you learn pretty quickly, hey, maybe that's not the right way to go. Um, experience can reveal truth to us. But if you'll notice on this diagram that Wesley has scripture not alongside, but above these other truth sources. In other words, if my experience is in disagreement with scripture, then I default back to scripture. If my science or my tradition say something that is contrary to Scripture, then my default is to go back to what the Bible says. A lot of modern scholars these days, instead of do, showing this model this way, with this kind of a relationship where Scripture is primary, where Scripture is the ultimate true source, they want to set Scripture down alongside as one source of truth equal. And then if there's a disagreement between my reason and Scripture, or between my experience and Scripture, then I just have to kind of wrestle out the difficulties there and live in the gray area but instead what wesley says is hey look a high view of scripture which is what peter espouses sets the bible as the primary true source that, again when when these other sources disagree with what's in the bible i go back to what the bible has to say uh, what this means what difference this makes to your life and to mine is that when competing voices enter into the room and offer alternative lifestyles and alternative approaches and different perspectives of reality than what the Bible teaches, and promise freedom from religious restraints, that when that appears, that we then push back on that and say, you know what, I, I get that's what you think. <laughs> I, I get that. But what matters most to me, 
the thing that matters most in the world is not what you think, but it's what God thinks. And I don't have to wonder what God thinks because he wrote it down. So the difference, the first difference that this makes to your life and to mine is that a Bible that is God-breathed and God-produced is a book that is authoritative for my life. So much so that it occupies the top spot amongst all other competing voices. Second difference, and this involves culture. The second difference this makes to your life and to mine is that we need to recognize that while we may have this view of the Bible, where the scripture is primary, that's how we see things, that's how we see reality, we default to the Bible, that's our instinct. While we may have that instinct, the culture, the world at large, does not share that view. Um, I think it's very apparent to us that we are living in a post-Christian era of American history. Um, Christianity, uh, for a long time, held culture together. Christianity, for a long time, Judeo-Christian values were the foundation of how we saw the world and how we understood our place in it for American society. But America has moved away from church experience. America has moved away from what God thinks and move toward reason and tradition and experience and all these other sources of truth. Um, and because of all of that, uh, the difference that that makes is that now that American society no longer looks to the Bible, now that American society has unmoored itself from Christian restraint, something has to fill the void. Something has to take its place. Something has to be the moral fabric that now holds society together. I mean, Judeo-Christian values used to be what we all kind of looked at, whether somebody went to church or not. I mean, many of you grew up in the world where, you know, there are people who didn't ever darken the door of a church, but they still held to these Judeo-Christian values. Not anymore. So in 1984, here's what author Francis Schaeffer predicted that would look like when America unmoors itself from Christian restraint. Here's what he writes, and I quote, he writes, and when the memory of the Christian consensus, which gave us freedom, as in our freedom to govern ourselves, when the memory of the Christian consensus, which gave us freedom, is increasingly forgotten, a manipulating authoritarianism will tend to fill the vacuum. At this point, in other words, when you reach this point, he writes, the words right and left in political speech will make little difference. They are only two roads to the same end. The results are the same. He goes on, an elite and authoritarianism as such will gradually force form. In other words, will gradually force a, a conscience, a value system on the society so that it will not go into chaos and most people will accept it, end quote. Francis Schaeffer wrote that in 1984. What was his chief concern? What did he believe would be the catalyst that would lead to an authoritarianism within government? He said it would be the day that the Church of Jesus Christ in America gave up on the authority of Scripture. That was his whole thesis in that book that he writes called uh, An Evangelical Disaster or The Evangelical Disaster. When biblical values are removed from society and the Christian conscience fades, and people are no longer able to govern themselves, something or someone has to step in and bring order to chaos and restraint to evil. Otherwise, the society will disintegrate, 
Otherwise, the society will begin to pull itself apart. Listen to one of our founding fathers. This is President John Adams. Here's his assessment of American liberty. Adams writes, our Constitution and the remarkable freedoms that it affords for self-governance, such a Constitution, he writes, was made only for a moral and religious people. It is wholly inadequate to the government of any other. What's he talking about there? He's saying if Christian restraint is not present in a society, then that society can't be given the kind of freedoms that our Constitution affords. So this is the second difference all of this makes, that with a loss of biblical authority, a void is created, a void that must be filled. Society can't hold itself together without it. And what will fill the void, what is filling the void, is an increasingly more authoritarian uh, form of government. By necessity, a people absent of conscience cannot govern their own lives. Number three, third difference that this makes to your life and to mine, this is my final point. Um, I've got a couple of pictures for you here that shows some storm damage, hurricane damage, actually. One of these was from one of the most recent hurricanes down in Florida. A couple were also from fl hurricanes in Florida. Um, but you begin to get the point just in these pictures, just looking at these things alone. Um, and that is that the foundations of these structures uh, were built on sand. And sand, when a hurricane comes, does not hold up very well against rising tides and against buffeting waves. So basically, the foundation of these structures set these structures up to fail. You follow that? Okay. Jesus talked about this in the Sermon on the Mount. He said in Matthew chapter 7, a couple of scriptures here, verse 24, he said, Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. Verse 25, the rains fell, the floods came, the winds blew and beat on that house, but, did not, but it did not fall because it had been founded or built on the rock. Jesus is saying that when we build our lives on his teachings, when we follow God's prescription for our lives and his understanding of what our purpose in life should be, that when we build our lives on that, um, we are like a builder who builds his house on a firm foundation. And that house is not going anywhere. Now compare that with the other fellow in Jesus' story. Jesus does not, uh, this fellow did not build his house on the rock on the authority of the words of God. Uh, verse 26, And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. Verse 27, And the rain fell, the floods came, the winds blew, and beat against that house. And the outcome of that was very sad. He says the house fell, and great was the fall of it. You know, we all know people, even, even in our own selves, even in our own experiences of life, whose lives, you can maybe go back to one of those pictures, whose lives look like some of those pictures, right? They, they, maybe things were looking really good, it was, they built up something really beautiful, and then the next thing you know, as the waves come, as the winds buffet, um, it just erodes the foundation, and that's what's left. Typically, when our life looks like this, not always, but typically, it is because we have been living our lives on something other than God's truth in written form. We have become like Adam and Eve in the garden. Hey, you know what? I can do this. I can try this. I can manage all this. This is not going to be a problem. It won't harm me. And the result is always the same. 
We reap what we sow, and disaster results. Now contrast that with what we're doing every week around here. Uh, when we participate in home groups, when we participate in Sunday school, and in morning services, and in midweek Bible studies, we are building the foundation. That's what we're doing. We are building the foundation and building the foundation and shoring up those blocks and making sure that the concrete is in there. When our little ones gather down the hall to learn Bible stories and to learn the Word of God, they are building that foundation. We are helping them build that foundation upon which the rest of their lives and they're raising their own families one day will be rested upon. We are setting up their lives and our own for success. Um, I want to close out this morning by just reading you a couple more verses. Uh, this comes from the first chapter of 2 Peter. And Peter alerts his audience to something that's um, pending um, in his own journey here on this life. And here's what Peter has to say. We've, we spent a lot of time with Peter, over the, like I said, over the last many months. Gotten to appreciate him, seen some of his flaws, uh, seen some of his, uh, you know, where he was kind of a hothead at times. And he, like you said, he walked in the room mouth first a lot. Um, but he also became, as we see here, a man of tremendous wisdom. A man whose heart was poured out for God. Um, and he lived his life for what God wanted to accomplish through him. And here's, uh, we're reading Second Peter. This is his final address um, as he comes in toward the end of his life. Listen to these words. He says, First Peter chap- I'm sorry, 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 13. I think it is right, as long as I am in this body, to stir up by way of reminder. Verse 14, since I know that the putting off of my body will be soon, as our Lord Jesus Christ has made clear to me. Verse 15, and I will make every effort so that after my departure, you may be able at any time to recall these things. Let's bow our heads together. Most gracious God, we thank you for the life of Peter. We thank you, Lord, that you saw fit to take this not quite perfect guy and to set him up as the head of your church here on earth. Lord, we're thankful for the words that spilled out of his mind that was being guided and directed by your Holy Spirit. Words for our enrichment, our encouragement, words also of warning. Lord, we pray that um, as we reflect on our own selves through Peter's life, that we recognize, Lord, that just the same, you love imperfect people. You love people, Lord, who have flaws and mistakes and don't always get it right. Lord, that you'd love even the sinner such as I. And yet, Lord, that you can take and mold and shape what is imperfect and perhaps the world would say is not going to amount to a whole lot. And Lord, you can turn it into something extraordinary. Lord, as we gather around this table this morning, we're reminded of your broken body and of your shed blood, which makes all these things possible. 
God, we give you these moments of quiet. We ask that your Holy Spirit would stir and work in our hearts as we um, remember uh, your sacrifice and your great love for us. We pray these things in Christ's holy name. Amen.